Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. It took Marlene Terry almost 20 years to get elected to the Missouri House. And now that the St. Louis County Democrat is in office, she's trying to make her mark in education policy and as the chairwoman of the Missouri Legislative Black Caucus. Terry joins us next on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to talk about the Black Caucus's goals and what she expects out of the General Assembly in 2023. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking Podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I am your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me from Jefferson City, she is St. Louis Public Radio State House and politics reporter. Sarah Kellogg. And joining us for the first time, she is the newly elected chair of the Missouri Legislative Black Caucus. Our guest today is... Representative Marlene Terry from the 66th District. St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, before we talk about your biography or uh, some of your views on being in the Missouri House, can you just let our listeners know what the boundaries of your district are? It begins in Bell Fountain Neighbors. I have part of Spanish Lake. Um, I also have now Castle Point and uh, Glasgow Village and just a little bit of Moline Acres which is uh, North County of St. Louis County. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what you were doing professionally and, and personally before you uh, won election to the Missouri House in 2020. Okay, before I won the House of uh, Election in 2020, I was actually taking care of my grandchildren. I was blessed to uh, be able to, after being retired from BJC, uh, health systems of 20 years, I was able to stay home and take care of my grandchildren. And I also work uh, in the funeral business part-time. So I've been doing that for uh, like 20 years or, or plus. Uh, and, and what allowed me to get into politics some years ago, back in 1999, I was the first African-American elected to the Review Garden School Board which is part of one of my districts, the Bell Fountain Neighbors, which I reside in. Um, I uh, went to a meeting uh, in one of our schools, actually one that was close to my home. And uh, like I said, that was in 1999. And I looked around and the demographics of the board did not match the demographics of the student population, which was 95% African-American. 
And so I've always been the type of individual uh, when I saw something that wasn't, well, just didn't look right or there was no representation, I uh, looked around the room and asked certain people, did they have a problem with that? And most of them did not. And so I ran for office back in 1999, was elected the first African-American. And uh, it was it was challenging. Um, I, I wanted to uh, make a difference for our community, for the children in our community. And so that's what actually gave me the uh, opportunities to start doing what I was doing. I never wanted to think of myself as a politician, just always an advocate for individuals in my community. It started off being an advocate for children. And so it, it just became something to do. I often wondered what my passion was. You know, when you have to look around and say, you know, why am I here? What is my purpose? And after serving in different capacities, even working at a hospital and working at a funeral home and then serving in the political realm, I found out and prayed a lot that my passion was to serve. It was to help others in spite of, you know, I'm one of those type of people that have trials and tribulations and, and you just wonder why you're going through things that you're going through. And I had to get some spiritual advice. I can never help anyone if I haven't been through something myself. You can't help someone or give people advice if you haven't actually lived that. And so with all the things that I've been through in my life, it has given me the opportunity to even speak unto others or speak to others about situations and be a help made in that way. And that's what got me started in politics. And that was, that's what led me after so many years of, of being at home with the grandchildren, because I didn't have, even though it started off good when we been on the school board, it became, I saw a lot of political struggle in that. And it was kind of disappointing how it all ended. But my children was like, you know, get back here out there. That's what gives you life. And so I jumped, I decided to run after 20 years, I decided to run for the House of Representatives and was successful. So you, you mentioned trials and tribulations. Uh, your election in 2020 is kind of a lesson in persistence. You had run three times for the House yeah. of Representatives unsuccessfully, I believe in 2002, 2004, and 2016. Is that correct? I want to make sure I'm getting the years that's, correct. That's that's correct. In 2002, I was still on the school board, and that's when I had really became very acquainted with a lot of people in my community. But what I found out about uh, running in, in elections and things like, like that, you have to have a lot of backing uh, support from individuals. And I ran against a candidate that was a strong labor individual. And so that person had the, the labor backing her all that all those times. And so that's what um, beat me out. You know, and it wasn't because uh, I don't think I wasn't the most qualified or she was more qualified. It was just that she had more funding and uh, she had more backing from individuals that in the community that was more supportive um, monetary wise. So what did you learn from those losses that helped you in your successful election in 2020? Not to give up, you know, always follow your dreams, because there's been many times when uh, I've set out to do some things. And so for me to be an example for my children, I had to show them that if you if you want something bad enough, that you keep going for it. And if it's for you, what's for you is for you. And that's why I felt like it was really my time and all the times that I didn't, I even was thankful and thank God at, at, at that point, because 
like I said, I was able to stay home with my grandchildren and take care of them when most of the time that is what a person would want to be home with their small children. So I was given that opportunity after helping other children in the past to come and help my own children and then to move on to what my heart desires and for the future. So I just looked at it as a blessing and it was just my time. You're about to start your sophomore term in the Missouri legislature. What has been your general impression on your first two years in the Missouri House? Well, I'm going to tell you, there were some good days and there were some bad days. Um, and I, I want to say the good days was getting to know all the individuals and the whole process. It was challenging. And so uh, that was interesting to learn, to sit back. I'm an observer as well. Uh, I, I observe a lot. And so I sat back, it gave me the opportunity to sit back and look at others and see how they move. And, you know, you learn a lot from looking at individuals about them. And I tell people all the time, I probably could tell you more about yourself than you can yourself because I've been watching you. <laughs> they like, what? tell me about yourself, Miss Marley. Um, and just being there all, it was just um, amazing to that beautiful building, you know. And so some of the bad times though were, uh, listen to uh, laws that were being presented, uh, and especially in committee sometime, and then people would come and testify, and you would be wondering, like, where where do you live, or where are you getting this information from? And then they would talk about the underserved sometimes so bad, so that would bring tears in my eyes, even on the floor, you know, when you're talking about the underserved, you know, when we talk about different things, Medicare and expansion, and, and how it was so heartbreaking, like, it's just like, Certain individuals didn't care, you know, if, if, if people that needed the help. And we all sometime were going to have to go down the path where we might need assistance from, from different things. But, you know, you were hearing things like that you would never think that would come out of people's mouths. And that was heartbreaking for me, you know. But I, 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 I'm the type of person that never let them see you sweat. So it, even if I had a tear in my eye, well, I would have to leave the room and come back and be a big girl about it. But it's all a learning process. It's, it, to me, it's just a learning process, not to take it personal. You know, everybody wants to be a winner and everybody can't be a winner. Has there been anything about serving in the house that surprised you? Well, it surprised me that even those Democrats and Republicans that when issues came up of concern, which should affect the whole state of Missouri, that it was hard to sometimes come together as one and make decisions that's good for the whole state of Missouri, not just a Democrat or a Republican. And so that is what surprised me the most because I thought that we would just like really be working hand in hand with one another and getting some things done. But it, it became days where it looked like we didn't get anything done and it, it's heartbreaking. It was just heartbreaking for me. You were recently named the chairwoman of the Missouri Legislative Black Caucus, as we mentioned in uh, the first part of the show. Why did you decide to pursue this position? Well, again, it took me 20 years to get there. <laughs> and so, you know, that's just been uh, the Black Caucus chair, I believe, is, is an honorable position. And like I said, I'm, I'm the type of person that wants to make a difference in my community. And so with me being in Jefferson City, that was one of the roles that I thought would be very uh, honorable position and one that maybe I could get a chance or, or the opportunity to speak with others uh, on the floor about, you know, access to uh, equal opportunity and rights for others. 
and, and just try to get an understanding why that would be so hard for, um, for individuals. And then at the same time, um, we have a lot of smart young people that are in the caucus uh, from different parts, Kansas City, Columbia, St. Louis, St. Louis City and County. They're very smart. I, I always tell the younger adults that are in our caucus how proud I, proud I am of them. And um, I just felt like working with them to strengthen uh, what, what the caucus should be about and some us coming together, unified. Uh, we had a rough time when I got elected because it was the COVID season. So we didn't get a chance to do a lot. I didn't hear a lot of uh, opposition of things that we should have been speaking out about. Because if you if you not if you're not going to be able to pass a law and and you know st certain things are right, I feel like we should be able to at least make some noise about it. That's one thing that I learned from all my times of I'm not one to really sit quiet uh, on issues and not let it be known. And I don't think we were outspoken enough uh, as a caucus about things that were that was going on that we should have been speaking out about. And so I just want to be a part of that uh, uh, transition and uh, mostly bringing everybody together and unifying one another in this group so that we can be a stronger group. Uh, we have a lot, my vice chair is a very well-spoken individual, young man, very articulate. Uh, everybody that's part of our board now is, is just young and vibrant and articulate and professional. And we all try to be professional. We're all on, like on the same page. We, have, we communicate with each other very well. So I, I, I figured that we would be a good team that could bring notori notoriety to the Black Caucus. You, you kind of just hit on this point, but the vast majority of Black lawmakers in Missouri are Democrats. I believe that there has there was one Republican African American elected in St. Charles County. Um, yes, but that means you're you know heavily outnumbered for the most part um, by Republicans. So how do you make an impact in the legislative chamber with that reality? Well, you know. There are some Republicans. They're they're pretty nice guys. Some of them. The when some of the first people I met, people I met when I when I got uh, elected, my first two friends were Republicans, um, and we we vowed to make a difference. And I sent them a message this summer, uh, since I've been elected to chair. That remember we vowed to make a difference in the House. Um, they didn't follow through with that this past session, but I'm reminding them of that. I want to be able to have a communication. And and uh, a relationship, and the and our team has relationships with Republicans. So I just figured that if we all decide to come together, and uh, even with our friendships, and form some things that can be done. You know, uh, one of my first supporters that really helped me was a Republican. Um, uh, he has moved on to another position in uh, Jefferson City, but. He's someone that I talk to all the time. You know, he he, he likes some of my bills. I, I've taken my bills to the Republicans and asked them to look at them. You know, what do they think? So I just think it's all about forming relationships. And I think we're going to be able to do that. What are some of your general goals for the Black Caucus in 2023 and 2024? Well, like I said before, that we can become unified and that we work on issues together. 
Um, I think that we, I would like for us to get a bill, an issue. We need to sit down and have a discussion on an issue that we think is of very importance and file that bill as the, the Black Caucus bill or something, you know, and bring light, light to that. And we should really work on that and pursue that. And, you know, um, I'm in education. I, I pay a lot of attention to education and charter schools and stuff like that. So I would like to discuss with them some of the thoughts that I have about that and hope that I can they can bag, bag me on that. And also they have issues in their community. And I would like for, for us to discuss those issues and that we all come together and back each other in our community with our community issues and our community efforts as well. As a caucus, I want us to have start having fundraisers where we can help each and every one of our communities with, 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 with issues that are going on or just contributions or, or benefits or anything. Because like I said, if we can't do things on the floor, I want us to be able to do things in our community as, as, the, as the caucus. Your statement after you were elected noted the MLBC's mission is to, quote, ensure access to quality public education, health care, safe communities, and the voting booths are not infringed upon. What do these principles mean in practice? It means everything. I mean, because it's like equal opportunity, you know, equal rights, and we all should have those. So that's one of the what's one of the reasons uh, I admire the Black Caucus for that, you know, because it's equal opportunities, equal rights, and, and assets, and so that's very important to me, and it's very important to all of us. And so that that's the reason why that was said. One of the big sources of contention over the last couple of years was requiring a government issued photo ID to vote, and that was put into implementation with this election cycle, from what you've heard from your constituents and other people around St. Louis County, how do you think that that requirement actually worked in practice with people? Well, I, I saw a lot of people come out and vote. So, you know, the requirement, I don't really think it was necessary. Um, we went to the election board last summer and, you know, you could tell from the questions and then it all, we all know where it all started from, the no trust at the election booths and, you know, cheating and all that. There's no cheating. There's no way that that, that happens. Uh, it, it never was proven that any of anything happened. And I just think those are things that were put in place to deter and, and just taking us backwards. But uh, the last election showed that people came out and vote. They got what they needed. And they will continue to do so because it's their right. And I just feel like some, you know, there were a lot of people that didn't have licenses or driver's license and had to go out and get them. And so, you know, you could use your, your card that they were sent out or whatever. And those aren't, you can't use those anymore. But I don't think it deterred anything. I just think it just took us back in times when, you know, you really tried to get people to come out and vote. Uh, some of the elderly um, I've known elderly people that don't even, can't even find their birth certificates for many reasons to get identifications and stuff like that. So that's why it was such a problem. But I just think that as a people, we will make it happen. We will make it happen. And, you know, one of the things I heard from election officials in St. Louis, St. Louis County and St. Charles County is that people really took to the no excuse in-person absentee period. For full disclosure, I actually voted early 
in Clayton for the first time ever. I'd never voted absentee before, and I took advantage of that. What did what it was kind of your impressions of the expanded window for people to vote early? And do you think that that's going to become kind of an integral part in the electoral process if it remains in place? I think people should be able to vote early. And, 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 and you do that for many reasons, you know, and just think how the weather was great this time when people were able to go and vote early. That's a, that's one good reason why, because when it's when it's time to go vote, sometimes it's, I think it poured down rain in that day or something. I don't. Yeah, know? I'm not 100 percent sure, but I do know that like in the week or so going up to the election, the weather was gorgeous. So mm-hmm. I do I do vaguely remember that time is a little bit uh, harder to track these days. But yes, continue, Representative. Yes, I, I just think that that that's a good reason. Uh, there are lots of reasons why people people want to get to work. You know, it used to be a time where people would give you so many hours off from work to go vote. I don't think that happens anymore. So people actually want to vote. And, and, and when you can find the time to go and do that and before it's election time, I think that should be granted. It's not a big issue. It, you know, it's just not a problem. And I don't see why they shouldn't continue to vote early. And you shouldn't have to have any excuse. I just want to vote early. We'll be right back after this quick break with Representative Marlene Terry. And we're back on Politically Speaking with Representative Marlene Terry. She's a Democrat from Bellfountain Neighbors who was recently elected to be the chairwoman of the Missouri Legislative Black Caucus. Um, I have a couple of questions about the initiative petition process because I think that that is going to become a major issue in the Missouri General Assembly in 2023. In fact, when I was talking with newly elected Senate Majority Leader Cindy O'Loughlin, a Republican from Shelbina, this is what she had to say about what her caucus in the Senate, the Republicans, want to do with the initiative petition process. Well, I think uh, the recent passage of recreational marijuana, which, as you know, I opposed, maybe indicates it's a little bit too easy to get things through initiative petition. And I think that we'll be looking at that. Um, really, the biggest downside of that is the legislature has no ability then to adjust anything. Once it's in the Constitution, it's it's in there. And so I think that we'll look at uh, some reforms for initiative petition process. How do you think members of the Missouri Legislative Black Caucus will respond if efforts to make constitutional amendments, for example, harder to pass comes to the floor? I really don't want to speak for the caucus. The, those are the type of issues that I want to be able to unite with them and us, we talk about together. I'm not sure. I, I'm pretty sure that they won't be for changing things through a petition through, with, for the Constitution. I don't think they're going to be too happy about that. Uh, I've been doing some reading up on that and all these signatures back and forth, back and forth signatures to get something changed in the Constitution from constituents and then being okay by the Secretary of State. Um, I don't think we'll be too happy about that. Uh, I think they just need to leave the the Constitution alone. Because one of the one of the proposals is basically if you have a constitutional amendment under this proposal that is mainly supported by Republicans, it would increase the percentage needed to put something in the Constitution from 50 percent plus one 
to 60%. So, okay, I don't want you to speak for the Missouri Legislative Black Caucus. What do you think about that idea? I, I, I again, think that they should just leave the Constitution alone. Um, just leave it alone. You know, they come up with these ideas that are self-serving to me. And uh, right now, I just don't think it's the time. We have a lot of things uh, ahead of us. And I have to really sit back and wonder, like, sometimes, like, why are these things being presented? And I have to do a lot of research when it comes to stuff like that. You know, it, you know, if the legislature were to pass something, it still has to go on the ballot and it would still have to be approved by Missouri voters. So do you think that Missourians would support efforts to make it more difficult for them to amend the state's constitution? Well, one thing I found out that when they put things on the ballot for the constituents, they don't even understand. Some of them don't even understand why it's on there or what they do or, what, or why they're voting on that. So to me, that's the problem right there. Amendments and stuff like that. They don't they'd be like, what is this? So it's bad enough that we have to you know, go through it there on the floor and then to put it on the constituents, unless you're going to really, really, really have some conversations on the outside with the constituents to like educate them on what's going on. Um, I have no problem with the constituents ha having a vote on something. It was just like the, the, the med medical marijuana and the marijuana, marijuana votes. I think that should have been brought to the, the public. Let's see what they want. What do you make of the argument that the Missouri constitution is too long and too easy to change? Well, I don't I don't think that it's it shouldn't be too easy to change, because if that's the case, then people would constantly be changing things. And as far as it too long as it's being too long. Maybe, but it's been going. I mean, we got a lot of things that's been going on for years. So, you know, but I don't think you should just arbitrarily be able to go in and just change things like that. So let's go to a topic that I know that you're very passionate about, and that's education policy. You're on the House uh, Elementary and Secondary Education Committee. And when I again, I'm going to play another clip from Senator O'Loughlin, because before she was Senate Majority Leader, she was actually the chairwoman of the Senate Education Committee. And she also said that educational policy is going to be a major issue in 2023. And this is the specific issues that she would like to focus on. Well, we're having a difficult time recruiting and retaining teachers, so that, that's an area of conversation. I know that on the Education Committee, we've talked about looking at the foundation formula, maybe making a few tweaks to it, so I could see that coming up. Um, the four-day four school week is a little controversial, considering, you know, as you just mentioned, our scores are declining. I don't see how being there one less day a week is going to be, uh, you know, a way to drive our scores up. So those are some of the things I think we, we're going to have to look at. So those are the Senate Republican education priorities. What do you think will be the priorities for House Democrats who are on the Education Committee and interested in education policy? Well, that is an interest of mine. And I'm going to tell you, I plan on talking to our caucuses about the Department of Education. And I'm saying that because we've been focusing on a lot of things in education. And one thing 
that I, I'm believing to find out is that, especially when our schools have test scores that are low, and then the Department of Education can come in and take over, over your school system. Um, I was irritated because it happened to my district and uh, the Department of Education had actually been in my district for 20 years and no changes were made. So when I started inquiring about that, I found out that there was no, they were not monitoring the individuals that they sent into our school system that was supposed to make it better. So how do you be over something to make it better and you sit for 20 years and, and the scores decline as she said, they're steady declining because you're not monitoring the individuals that you put in there that was supposed to make it better. I have a problem with that. Yeah, I just wanna make sure I understand what you mean by that. So you're basically saying that the members of the special administrative board for Riverview Gardens that were, I guess, appointed. I, I, I don't know who appointed them, but you're saying that Desi. Desi. You're saying that Desi was not like actively monitoring like what they were doing on the board. No, they were not. And, and actually, they had a superintendent that came. I don't know if it was before during the time that Desi came in. And, he, and from what I understand, he didn't he wasn't allowed to do his job. And I was just at a meeting recently when uh, one of the board presidents said that they were told to run the school district, to make the decisions. Now, how do you do that when you're not, um, you don't have a, a doctors or anything in education? You don't have a financial background to, to run a school district. Uh, it's just that convinced me then that the problem with the school system is how it's being monitored up under the Department of Education. And so I don't know if you want to go into charter schools. Yes, that, that, that was one of my questions. You, you, you read my mind. <laughs> Um, because, charter schools. Yeah, because I think that I think it's that's an important question about charter school expansion, because if there was going to be expansion of charter schools, it would likely be in a district like Riverview Gardens. And what would kind of be your thought process about legislation that would make that easier? Um, I don't know what would make it easier because charter schools have just as much difficulty and they're failing just as worse as, as regular public schools. Uh, my problem with charter schools, I have no problem with people having choices, but if they don't follow the same guidelines, that's where the problem comes in for me. And when you take money from the public schools where I don't think the, the formula is, is right uh, in the first place, that uh, there's, no, there's not enough financial for the schools, that you're complaining about. And uh, I just have a whole a problem with the whole setup. And it all stems from the Department of Education from what I see. And I just feel like we've been going and looking at the wrong individuals. We should be looking at the Department of Education and how they maintain or how they work. Because anytime you step your foot into a school and been in there 20 years, and no one said a word until I got elected. I was like, how long have you people been here and when are you leaving? Because nothing has progressed here. And 
then they decided, oh, well, we'll start having a vote and weed back in people from the public. Well, yeah, it should have been folks from the first place who represent the community sitting on those boards. They're the ones that have the, the nutrient, the caring for, the, for their community and their schools. And they can make the decisions along with the superintendents. But when you sit in your board who has nothing or to do with the school district or really no, basically no concern, and you're not even monitoring what they're doing, they have no procedures in place, nothing why are they there so this past legislative session governor parson called for a raise in teacher pay um and i know the legislature was able to deliver on that but do you expect maybe another attempt to do that because to pay in missouri teachers is still lower compared to other states do you expect to see kind of another attempt to bolster teacher pay in the upcoming budget um it, it probably would help you know, I, I support the teachers wholeheartedly. They have a hard job. And uh, I have no problem with supporting raises for teachers or anybody that's in education. Uh, it's well-deserved. I just think that what needs to happen is that legislators need to let teachers teach and uh, kind of stay out of their profession. That's what I think. Well, in the same kind of vein, do you expect Republicans to try again to attempt to pass legislation labeled as a parent's bill of rights, which bolsters parents' involvement in education, allowing parents to sue uh, public school districts? I would like your opinion on, on kind of that kind of bill. Well, the parent's bill of rights was a very hot topic. And I think that that bill was one of the reasons why we don't have quality teachers now. We don't have a lot of things going on in our schools and they don't seem to realize that. You know, you can't come in and be bullying individuals who are actually there nurturing and helping our children advance. And it's just that you you just can't do that. There was a time, it's like they their hands are tied and, and they're afraid. So who wants to, to um, go to work every day and, and be worried about if your topic or something is controversial and you can arbitrarily maybe be sued, that's ludicrous. So I think that those type of bills are the things that have hindered our educational process. And um, we're gonna continue to fight uh, to stop that nonsense because I, I really think that those are personal uh, projects from individuals that came in because some of the stories that I heard, like I said, sitting in, in on the committee it was all like personal, you know, when my neighbor next door, she got a son and they went to school and blah, blah, blah. And this happened. And, and they came home crying because the teacher, you know, read this book or something like that. No. Stay out of the education, out of the educational process. These people know what they're doing. They have procedures in place in the schools. You know, we have to trust that, that they know what they're doing and they're doing their job well. Well, Representative, thank you so much for joining us on Politically Speaking. Uh, Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can read all of our stories on stlpr.org. Representative, how could people find out more either about yourself or the Missouri Legislative Black Caucus on the Internet, social media, 
homing pigeons, any 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 sort of information that I, I don't know why I said homing pigeons. Homing, homing pigeons are not an information okay. dissemination device. But how can people learn more? Well, homing pigeons might because you know, like I said, I'm in the funeral business, so we have little doves that fly away and they come back, and they probably could, you know, they you can train them to drop off little messages. They're just as smart, but. Social media, um, I am on Facebook, elect Marlene Terry. And then you can always, my door and my office and my phone is always open to any and everyone. You over there cracking up. There's always open to any and everyone. Uh, my email is marlene.terry.mo.gov. And so contact me that way. You can give me a call. Me and my assistant, we're always available to help any and everyone that calls our office. You will get a call back. I'm one of those representatives that will call you back. I've had people say, I've never had somebody call me back, but I'll call you back and just hit my, my Facebook page. Thank you very much. Until next time, so long. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking.